morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Frank. Thank you. They know my name. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor at Redemption Arcadia. We are glad that you are with us. Uh, have a little quick um, sort of announcement update to mention uh, before we get started, if you could indulge me. Um, a number of uh, months ago, well, maybe two or three, we took the offices that we had downstairs and uh, moved out of there in anticipation of our children's ministry growing. Uh, and we moved over to 36th Street and Indian School. And in fact, our children's ministries not only grew, but it kind of exploded. Um, and especially in our first service, we doubled our numbers in first service over the last four to five weeks. I mean, just we just went from uh, one number to the next. There wasn't any gradual increase. It just blew up, kind of. Uh, and that has caused us, uh, especially in the first service, to run into a little bit of a problem. We have the space to expand, but we're struggling to get our, our volunteer forces up to a level where we can expand into those unused classrooms. And so what's been happening in our first service is that if we get to a point in the babies section and in the toddler section where we reach our max ratio for workers versus children. And, and we're not going to exceed that max ratio because uh, we want to make sure that we're doing this safely and within code and everything. And so what we need to do is we need to open two more rooms in that first service for babies and toddlers. But that means we need some help. Over the last four or five weeks, as uh, children's ministry has really grown and exploded, we have had some people step up and help us. And so what's happened is we're now able to adequately staff for the space that we were filling, but now we need to, uh, to start staffing for the space that we need to fill. And so once again, I would just ask you, if you've been kind of thinking about uh, serving in children's ministry, we could, we could really use your help now. And especially some of you macho guys, and even you not so macho guys, this would be really good for you to go down there. Um, maybe those of you who haven't had babies yet, uh, you could practice. It would be really helpful and uh, you could learn a few things. And so seriously, think about that. And let me just close this announcement by saying this. We are glad to have this challenge. This is a good challenge. Uh, the type of challenge that we would be really distressed about is if nobody was showing up with children, okay? Uh, that would be a problem. That would be a sign that we were not very healthy. And so we're glad to have this challenge. It is a challenge nevertheless. And so uh, I just appeal to you to give Linda a little bit of help. Uh, we are continuing in our series in First Peter this week. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12 of chapter 1, but we're going to really focus the most on, on verses 10 through 12. And we're going to be in a couple of different uh, places this morning, actually three, but I'll give you two right out of the gate. Turn to First Peter but also turn to Isaiah 53 and kind of stick your finger in there because we're going to be there very quickly. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, 1 Peter is uh, page uh, 656, and Isaiah 53 is page 396. And I just want to remind you that the four major themes of this letter of 1 Peter that we're going to pound for 15 weeks would be this. As a result of the gospel in your life, the good news of Jesus Christ in your life, Believers in Jesus Christ have a lot of things, but four big things. Number one, we have a reason to hope. We actually know that there is a future that is good for us, so we have a reason to hope, a promise of a glorious future. Second of all, we also know that all of us are going to suffer in this world one way or another, um, but in that suffering for the Christian, there is going to be purpose. We can always find purpose in our suffering. Third, we are also given a faith by God, 
that is going to allow us to remain steadfast and persevere and to live righteously. So this faith is going to be a tremendously powerful tool in our lives, not because we're so strong necessarily, but the resurrected Christ and the Holy Spirit in us is strong. And finally, we have a great inheritance. We have a great inheritance. Now today, these, especially uh, all five of these verses, but especially the last three, uh, really focus in on this issue of salvation. So yes, we're going to pound away on the idea, the concept, the principle of salvation again. Uh, and, and it's going to be very thorough and very complete, I believe. But also in the midst of that salvation, Peter will be bringing up two other very important topics. He'll be talking about suffering and he'll be talking about future glory, uh, our glory, Jesus' glory. And so we're going to look at salvation, suffering, and glory uh, this morning. So right back to 1 Peter. Let me read those first two verses again, verses 8 and 9. These set the context, really, for that next paragraph that we're going to really dive into, which is verses 10 through 12. Peter writes, though you have not seen him, though you've not seen Jesus, you weren't around to witness him like we were, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. So we talked a little bit about this last week. How do these people in these regions that Peter is writing if they didn't see Jesus, if they weren't with Jesus, they weren't around for his life, death, and resurrection the way uh, Peter and James and John were, how, how do they have this faith? And, and we talked about how uh, those people, as well as us today, have sort of this, it's, it's a faith that is not built on uh, our own eyewitness testimony, but rather on the witness of others and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And in a sense, you could say that this faith is then somehow, for us, turbocharged or blood-doped or, I don't know, just a little bit different because we didn't, we didn't see him, but rather we're relying on the testimony of the prophets and the preachers as well as, as God's word. In other words, in order for them to know about Jesus, they had to hear about it. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that faith comes by hearing, and to hear the message, someone must preach it or proclaim it or tell you about it. I know that the only reason I am a believer uh, is that the Holy Spirit worked through my wife, Jackie, before we were married to present the gospel and the reality of Jesus Christ in my life. I wasn't with Jesus, but I saw Jesus in Jackie, and, and God used that to open my eyes to the reality. Well, here you go. Look at verses 10 through 12. Peter answers this question for us uh, in the same way. He says, concerning this salvation. Those are three really big words today. This is what we're going to look at today. This is what we're going to study and try to understand. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, who proclaimed, who declared, who preached about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, there had been prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years looking for the Messiah, looking for the Savior that Jesus would eventually fulfill as that person. And then verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. The things that have been announced to you through, through those who preach the good news. So these these Christians in all of these different places, Cappadocia and Bithynia and all the rest, 
They, they came to faith because God used somebody to preach the good news, the gospel, uh, to them. Preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the importance of prophets in this process of God bringing people unto him for salvation through his son Jesus Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the author writes this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and all of those guys. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son and the witnesses of his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so I want to take you into Isaiah 53. For some of you, this will be a very familiar passage. For others of you, this will be new territory, and I'm excited for you to be able to hear about this. In Isaiah 53, he is essentially saying that eventually this Messiah, this person who is going to save God's people, will come, but he's speaking as if he's already been here. He's describing who this Messiah is going to be, and he describes, describes perfectly to a T exactly who Jesus was and what he went through in his crucifixion. So look at Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah writes, first three verses, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now don't just run past that language, like a root out of dry ground. That is actually not very complimentary language. A root out of dry ground is not a very attractive or healthy root. So he's beginning to describe this Messiah as somebody who is not going to have a very favorable outward appearance. And this is going to become a bit of a theme here that we're going to talk about for a, for a minute. Uh, Isaiah goes further. This Messiah had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In, in other words, the Messiah is walking down the street. He doesn't look like somebody that you're going to do a double take and go, wow, who's that guy? He doesn't have a good outward appearance. He's not somebody that would attract a crowd simply because he looks nice on the outside. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom man, men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In other words, people discriminated against Jesus. People discriminated against the Messiah partly because they didn't like how he looked. They discriminated against him because of his appearance. He didn't look right. If you remember the story of King David, King David was specifically picked for who he was on the inside, not because he looked good on the outside, right? You line up King David and all of his brothers before David was king, and you compare them, and David is always the last one you're going to pick. He's the last one picked for the team. He's the last one that you're going to think is going to be a great leader, but yet God is interested in what is on the inside of us and not on the outside. And this was written, this prophecy of Isaiah was written 2,700 years ago. Do you think we still have the same problem today that we're enamored with the razzle-dazzle and the flash of the outside but not that concerned about the inside? Of course we do. We fall for image management. 
We fall for the glitz. We fall for something that is pleasing to the eye, even to the extent that we, we won't even work at investigating what's underneath the glitz because we're afraid we might find emptiness and then have to turn away from uh, the glitz. And we're fooled by outside appearances all the time. Uh, I had this friend a number of years ago. He had just gotten married, and uh, his wife was... Uh, graduating from uh, her master's degree program, and it was a big deal, and so he decided to make her a party. And you need to understand something about my friend. And he would describe himself this way as well if he were standing right next to me, so I'm not breaching any confidences or anything. This guy is absolutely brilliant in many areas of life. I mean, he does things that you look at and you just go, wow, that's amazing. But over in other areas of life, he's like the absent-minded professor. I mean, he's the guy who can build a car, but he can't find his keys to the car, okay? And, 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 and add to that the fact that, that he lives his life under the just-in-time philosophy of life. He doesn't like to plan ahead. He kind of just does things as they come and gets them done just in time. So he wanted to have a party for his wife graduating from, from her master's degree program. Of course, he waited until the very last day to be able to put this all together. So now he realizes he needs a cake. He's got to have a cake at a graduation party. So he runs to Costco, runs in there, and he looks around at the cake displays, and he sees a cake that is, that is iced in all of the colors of the school that she is graduating from. And so he rushes over there and just grabs this cake and he grabs some little icing that he can put a message on later, grabs the cake, runs up to the, to the counter, and, and they're trying to ring it up, and there's a little bit of a problem with an SKU, but finally they find a number they can use in a price in $22.99, and they get him out of there. He goes home, and he and his father-in-law, his wife's father, put the cake in the freezer. Well, I'm sorry, first they put on their congratulations, blah, 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 and then they put the cake in the freezer because they want to keep it there for a couple hours and make sure it's going to be good for the party. They figured they'd pull it out one hour before the party started and everything would be fine. So they pull the cake out an hour before and it's sitting there, ostensibly thawing out. And then they go to cut the cake. And they pull out a knife that they figure can cut through sugar and flour and batter that's been cooked and everything. And this knife is going nowhere past the icing. It's just rock hard past the icing. Now they're thinking in their heads, this cake got frozen in those two hours and it's still frozen, okay? Wow, that's some freezer we have. We need, to, we need to remember that. So now they get a bigger knife, then they get a sharper knife, then they get the biggest, sharpest, most serrated edge knife that they have and this thing is not cutting through this cake. Now I kid you not, they finally decided we don't care what this cake looks like, we have to get it cut open. So he goes to his garage and gets a saw, which you normally use on wood. And they started using the saw on the cake. They didn't find cake on the inside of this cake. What do you think they found? They found styrofoam on the inside of this cake. It was a display cake. He had been fooled by the outside of the cake. And inside of the cake was darkness and evil. And an empty philosophy. You and I fall for this all the time, ourselves. We run into this all the time as well. We look at something on the outside and think it's really good, and then we don't investigate what's on the inside. I tried to tweet this the other day, but it was too many characters, which makes sense for somebody who also preaches too long. But anyway, here it is, okay? Uh, essentially, we live in a culture today that's really good at putting bumper stickers on cars, but we're not very good at thinking critically about what those bumper stickers actually mean. 
if it sounds good and it makes us feel good, we're willing to deface our $30,000 uh, paint job with this thing, even if we don't know what it really means. Okay? That's the culture we live in. We're being fooled by the appearances of things and turning things into saviors that, that have no business being saviors. We need to look on the inside, and we need to explore the inside of us as well. So verses 4 through 9 now of Isaiah 53, he goes in to describe a, a lot of what Jesus went through. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. He's there because of our sin. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Do you understand that as, as, as Jesus was going to the cross and being crucified, in order to save you and I from our sin, there were people pointing at him saying, obviously he's cursed by God, otherwise he wouldn't be treated that way. So the very act of going and saving us from our sin, people look at the outside of what's going on and say, that's not right, he must be an awful person, he must be cursed by God. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his, by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. In other words, we believe we know what's best, and God ought to just get with the program that we have figured out for ourselves, rather than us submitting to God's ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In other words, he just stood there and took the unjust punishment and execution. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off, uh, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. You understand that he was crucified between two wicked guys, two criminals. One of them who was saved, one of them who did go to paradise, nevertheless, they were wicked guys. So he made his grave with the wicked, but then a rich man, he was buried in his tomb, Joseph. That was a rich man that he was buried in. All of this describes Jesus. And what it describes is the fact that this innocent man, this innocent person, Jesus, who had done absolutely nothing wrong and did not deserve the treatment that he got, he nevertheless endured this treatment without objection, without whining about it, without complaining about it, because he was on a mission to save you and I today, as well as those people that Peter was writing to almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, one scholar writes this, It is a very great mystery that so great a person should suffer such a hard and evil thing. It, it, it is a very great mystery that someone as great as Jesus, how many of you would count yourselves as great as Jesus? Don't think about But that person suffered such an awful and wicked thing. Here you go. I am not trying to minimize the suffering that you and I go through in life. Because I know we suffer. I get that. 
And many of you in this room are suffering in ways that I could not even begin to comprehend right now. I am not trying to minimize your suffering. But the reason that this scholar says this is he's trying to help us with a little bit of perspective. Yes, our suffering is hard and it hurts. But put into the context of what Jesus went through. Maybe by the power of the resurrected Christ in us and the Holy Spirit, we can endure for our good and God's glory. Because Christ went to the cross. You have a Savior who does understand what you're going through. And he understands it to an extent that you and I will never be able to understand. So you have a sympathetic Savior that you can run to. Jerry Sitzer, in his great book, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss, he talks about suffering as somebody who has suffered tremendously in this world. And he says there are two characteristics to human suffering that nobody can escape. Number one, suffering is universal. All of us suffer. And number two, suffering is unique. All of us suffer in different ways. So we're all a part of the same club, but at the same time, we all have our own cross to bear, our own thorn in the flesh. And by the power of Christ, and by the power of the community of Christ, maybe we can work our way through this suffering that we are doing for our good and for God's glory. There is purpose in our suffering. And then understand this, this is absolutely huge. Because of our sin, we have a debt to God. Our sin creates a, a, a holiness gap between us and God. We have a debt to Him. When Jesus went to the cross, not only did He take upon our debt, not only did He take our, our ledger and wipe it clean, but He also paid all of the penalty for being in debt in the first place. He took, of every, he took care of everything else going forward. So not only did he wipe our debt out, but he also paid the penalty for our debt. He suffered the death that you and I do not have to suffer anymore. He suffered the separation from God that you and I will never have to experience, never have to suffer again when he went to the cross. I guess this is how much God loves us, that he would do this. And then verses... 10 through 12. And this verse 10 is really tough on a lot of people, and I understand that. But, but think about just how seriously God is about his love for us that he would do this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Those of you that have children, you think about that. i got to tell you something. I'm never going to crush Shelby or Darby for anybody else. Thank God I'm not God, because I couldn't do that. But that's how much God loves us. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their transgressions and, his, and their sins. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Some of you are saying, wow, that is really hard. That is really costly. Yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. 
that explains this. This grace that we have, while it is free, unmerited favor for us, it is not cheap. It costs God everything he has to reconcile us to himself. I'll say it again. That's how much God loves us. This is Isaiah 700 years before Jesus comes, saying that this Savior is coming. So why do we need this Savior? Why all of this hard stuff? Because God knows that there's a chasm between us and him that was created by our sin. We need to understand that we are sinners both in nature and in deed. And the only way, the only way that we would not need a Savior is if we lived an absolutely perfect and holy life, which all of us blew by at about the age of what? Three days? I know you don't have any awareness or consciousness of the sin you were committing then, but even then you were selfish and self-centered. You thought that came when you became two years old, right? No, 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 it came even earlier. Okay? We are egocentric. We are sinners in, by nature and by deed. And none of, all of us, all of us have already screwed up that record, right? We can all finish this, this little phrase, nobody's perfect, right? We know that about ourselves. And as a result, there's this chasm that we can't fix, we can't become good enough, we can't work hard enough. But by grace, through faith in his son, God has provided us for his son to be able to reconcile us to him to end that chasm, to bridge that gap, that is the good news, that we are reconciled to God as a result of that. In his love, he remedies the situation through his son, crucified, buried, buried, and resurrected. Now, I recognize this. This may be new to you. You may be new to redemption or new to church at all. This may be the first time or the second time you're ever hearing the gospel, and this may not be the remedy that you like. It may not square with your worldview or your sensibilities or your convenience or your consumer-driven self-centeredness. Or it may be too violent for you or too ancient or too narrow or too implausible. Whatever. The problem is, if it's true, then none of our sensibilities matter. How we feel about it isn't going to change whether or not it is true. And based on the witnesses... The 500 or more witnesses who were there, who saw Jesus live, die, and, and be resurrected, and then ascend to heaven. Based on them, and based on the witness and testimony of this magnificent book, which is many books compiled into one book over the course of 1,500 years without error or contradiction. And then based on the fact that this institution known as the Church of Jesus Christ, us, redemption, and others like us, Having survived for 2,000 years against oppression and persecution that would have brought down nations, yet we have survived, the church has survived for 2,000 years. How did the church do it? Because we're such strong and good leaders? No. Because it's the power of God doing it. God built this church. The Holy Spirit built this church. This testimony, the witnesses, God's word, and the church all say the same thing. The truth is, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you haven't crossed that line yet today, this is it. I can't get it any plainer or simpler than that. Jesus is here to save you and love you like you've never been loved before. And he's not going to remodel your life. He's going to radically change your life. And you should be excited about that, not scared. But I know you're scared. I'm speaking to those of you who are not Christians right now. When I was 
27, and I wasn't a Christian, and God invaded my life and used Jackie as the vessel to do that. I remember sitting in that church service and hearing the good news and knowing it was good news and knowing that I should be excited about it, and I was, but I was also scared. I was so scared that I could see my heart beating through my shirt. And I wore plaid long sleeve shirts back then too. Yes, I haven't changed fashion in all those years, I'm telling you. God saved and redeemed these shirts too, okay? But finally I said, I cannot resist this any longer. God's invading my life. He's here to invade your life as well too. And for those of you who already are Christians, this should be encouraging to you. Because you know that that same power is still at work in your life, working to sanctify you. This desire that we have to tell you about Jesus is not only our desire, it's God's desire too. In fact, his desire is more important than ours. He wants you to know his son because he wants you to be reconciled to him. And that is why the church exists, by the way. We exist to proclaim the gospel and to worship the one true God. The church is not a social club, though sometimes we act like it, and that's okay. It's great when we get together and have community. And that's one of the wonderful byproducts of church, but that's not the primary reason we exist. We exist to proclaim the gospel and the truth of it. Church is not a business networking association, although people with businesses would like it to be because they see the potential here. I get that. And I will tell you that I do a lot of business with people in, in, in our church. Jackie and I call people in our church first if we know that they do something and have a service that we need. We do that, but that's not the primary reason to be in a church. It's not like I said, I need to go past a Redemption Arcadia because they have really good business, businesses in there that I could take advantage of. We're here to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We're not a source of entertainment. Although having fun and feeling good is a byproduct of knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ, it's true. It's true. As Christians, we can have fun and feel good. It's okay. In fact, I would expect that at times we would. Years and years ago, Jack, I was a huge hockey fan before I became a volleyball fan, but I was a huge, huge hockey fan. And Jackie and I had season tickets to the Phoenix Roadrunners when they were in the International Hockey League, minor league hockey, and they were really cheap, and so we were six rows off the ice, and we were in a section that was jam-packed full of rowdy people. And, and we had those season tickets for eight years. Somewhere along the line, they discovered that Jackie and I were Christians, all those people around us. And they could not believe that we could have so much fun and still be Christians. By the way, the way they discovered that we were Christians is we used to leave the section in prayer after all the hockey fights. Just kidding. We didn't really <laughs> Man, there's some gullible people. <laughs> no, we didn't. We're yelling, hit him! Hockey, you know. The love of Jesus, hit him! We're not here primarily for entertainment. But you're going to have fun. And you're going to feel good. The other thing we're not here primarily for is for some self-help, self-improvement program. Though I will tell you, if you know Jesus, he's going to radically reconstruct your life in ways that you haven't even imagined. We are the church. We, we exist primarily to proclaim the gospel inside the church and outside the church. And that's Peter's message here. That's what he's saying concerning this salvation. And to that end, listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What have we been saying for the last several weeks? Christianity is not mild reform. You're not going to get a little paint job here. Maybe put some caulk in your cracks, okay? That's not what's going to happen. 
you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. This is not your work. This is not my work. It's not Sean's work. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, he didn't just save us to be content and to hang out and do nothing. He saved us to go out then and to proclaim the gospel to the world. Uh, Redemption Church is gospel-centered, but outward-focused. Once we're saved, we turn ourselves inside out and recognize that our job is to go and serve and minister to other people. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sin, against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That just cracks me up, that God has entrusted to someone like me his message of love. He must be a lunatic. Because I suck. And he does it anyway. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the resurrected Christ. He's working through you as well. Some of you don't even realize how well he's working through you. Wake up and look at what the Spirit is doing in your life. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us. He has chosen us as his vessel. We employ you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Paul's language here could not be any stronger. He says, we implore you, come to Christ. If you are not somebody who believes in Jesus, we implore you. We beg you. We are telling you in the strongest of terms, with all the love that we can muster, it's time for you to cross that line of faith and come to Christ. The Spirit is talking to you right now. He is opening your eyes. He is taking that dead heart of stone of yours, and he is making it alive right now. Come to Christ. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin, so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. You understand how radical that is? He took perfect Jesus, laid all of our sin on him, made him pay the penalty, wipe our debt clean, just so that you and I could not have to suffer any of it. That's how much God loves us. In verse 12, Peter says, through those who preach the good news to you, he said, this is how this faith has happened. God has used his vessel. And we pray that we would be a church that would do the same thing. We pray that we would be a church that is led and, and understands that we have people who have the gifts of, of being prophets, people who can proclaim the truth, people who teach people who confront, people who understand theology and can do all of those things. But we also pray that we are a church that has priests as well. Priests are people who, who um, are shepherds and ministers who comfort and care for people. Uh, I, I would venture to say that every one of our RC leaders have a little bit or a lot of the priest gift in them because they're shepherds and they're disciples and they're lovers and they're people who care for others. And then we also need the gifts of what people call the kings. We need people to be able to manage and direct and plan and administrate and do all of those things. And it is out of that giftedness that God gives us prophets, priests, and kings that this church is used by God to minister to this community. Not only the community of people who are in here, we should minister to you but also to the community that is outside of the walls of this church. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. And we pray to excel 
in those three areas. In verse 11, he says these prophets, even as they were prophesying, even though, even as they were talking about this Messiah to come, they wanted to know who it was and when he would come. Everybody wanted to know that. Everybody wants to know now when Jesus is going to come again. Some people actually think they do know. It's interesting. It, we're obsessed with this stuff. Even back when Jesus was born, there were other Messiah sightings. Then if you read your, your history, you realize that people were going around attaching themselves to other people that they thought were, was the Messiah and following him until he messed something up. And they go, well, it's not him. Let's go find somebody else. But many of those people were looking for the wrong type of Messiah, just like people today look for the wrong type of Messiah. Many of the people back then were looking for the Messiah that they thought would come, the type of Messiah that was maybe 6'3", 6'4". They'd been working out for 10 years at L.A. Fitness every day for five hours and had guns like this and, and not in, like a 4% body fat, a, a strong jaw, who was just going to go to the Romans and kick the snot out of the Romans. Somebody who was good-looking, who looked good in a mirror and looked good with oil on them. That's what they were looking for. <laughs> and then Jesus came, and they're going, it's not him. They were wrong. Again, they were looking at the icing and not the actual cake. We need to understand who Jesus is. He came with a whole different message. He came, he came and he said, listen, I'm not going to go after Rome. I'm going to redeem Rome. I'm going to save them. And you guys, you guys who follow me, you're going to walk an extra mile with those Roman soldiers when they come and oppress you and tell you to pick up their stuff and carry it. You're going to love and pray for your enemies. You're not going to attack your enemies. He had a whole different message than what people, those Messiah lookers, were looking for. But he got it right. He's the Son of God and the Messiah. And then Peter says that, that Christ suffered, the sufferings of Christ in verse 11. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. If you want a little bit more of that, it's, it's Psalm 22. And then there's all kinds of other passages as well that you could look at Psalm 22 as well. But it's not just the physical beatings and, and the scorn and the emotional scorn that Jesus suffered. It was also the fact that, that God turned his back on him on the cross, that he was separated from his father so that you and I would never have to be separated from God again. And then he says the subsequent glories. That suffering... The salvation comes with suffering, but it's going to produce glory for all of us. Glory. You and I, if we're in Christ, if we're followers of Christ, understand our future is secured for us in the new Jerusalem, which is going to be glorious. We're going to have new resurrected bodies. We're never going to be hungry or thirsty for anything. It's going to be awesome. You should read that. I've said this so many times. You should read that description of the New Jerusalem. It'll give you some hope. You'll be like, why can't Phoenix be like this? It would be nice if it could. A little too hot here. Okay? I think it's always going to be 72 degrees in the New Jerusalem. That's my prediction. But listen to what Paul says about these subsequent glories, about this glory to come for all of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17, he says this. So we do not lose heart. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, we do not lose heart. That's another way of saying we have a living hope. He's saying exactly the same thing that Peter said in the first few verses of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. He's saying we have a living hope, therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day by the gospel. 
How many of you can identify with and give me an amen on the fact that your outer self seems to be wasting away? That's right. And for those of you who are teenagers, just you wait. These are the best years of your outer self life, I just want to tell you. I'm the bearer of bad news. Here's the truth about life. Gravity wins. We are all destined to sag, bag, and drag. But our inner self the important parts, our souls, are being renewed day by day by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, for this light momentary affliction. You understand that Paul calls all the suffering of life, all the suffering and trial and tribulation that we're going through, he calls it light momentary affliction. It doesn't feel light, does it? And it certainly doesn't feel momentary. Especially for those of you who have been suffering for a decade with whatever it is that you've been suffering. And, and I would get, venture to say that some of you would say that affliction is not strong enough word for what you're going through. But he calls it light momentary affliction. And he says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here's why he can call it light momentary affliction. And this is coming from a guy who was beaten to within an inch of his life, who was stoned, who was shipwrecked. You can look at later on at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, and you can see everything that he's been through. And believe me, it's a lot more than most of us in this room have been through. He calls that light momentary affliction, and the reason is because he's comparing it to this eternal weight of glory that he knows he's going to have. Once we get to heaven and we're with Jesus, and once we make it to the new Jerusalem, understand we're going to look back on all this stuff that we hated in this life, and we're going to say, you know what? It wasn't that bad. It was light. It was momentary. And it was only affliction because of what we have now. And it did help us to prepare for and appreciate what we have now. Peter also says that they were serving themselves and not you. These, these prophets knew that they weren't serving themselves, that they were serving other people by proclaiming uh, the Messiah and proclaiming uh, the gospel. And that is the essence of what it means to live the Christian life. It is to turn yourself inside out and start looking at other people. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, to consider others better than ourselves and to serve others. And to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of ourselves. Christianity is not for consumers. It is for people who are going to go and serve. Well, what about the application here? Let me just spend the last five minutes... Uh, giving you my theory on why I think this is so urgent and important to Peter. There's a sense of urgency and importance that you can just feel reading off the pages here. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 573. Turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to look at what Peter, what happens to Peter during Jesus' trial. I mentioned this last week. Peter's the one that promised Jesus, I'll go with you to prison and even to die. And then he walked away from it. And, and I just have to tell I, I have to tell you, in my humanness, I understand Peter's position. I, I get it. You get all charged up and revved up and you say, I'm going to go to the cross with you, Jesus. And then suddenly it starts to happen and you realize the reality of it. It might hurt a little bit. And you're like, maybe not. Maybe I really didn't, well, I meant it. I just don't think I can do it. But that's what happens to Peter. Starting in verse 31, chapter 22, verse 31. 
Jesus is talking to Peter, Simon, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might shift, uh, sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, there's a couple of other accounts of this event, this uh, idea that, that Peter says, I'm going to go with you, and Jesus says, no, you're not. And, and you should read those to kind of fill in the gaps. But I like Luke's because uh, the um, actual uh, explanation, the narrative of what happens later on when Peter denies him is the most personal and the most emotional, emotionally moving of all, all of the gospel accounts of this. Go down to verse 54 and look what happens. So then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Peter already knew he didn't really want any part of this. This was going to be really hard. This was really going to happen. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. This is the guy who just a few hours earlier said, I'll go to prison and I'll go to the cross with you. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of, an, of, an, of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while Peter was still speaking, while he was saying these words, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter from a distance. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Here's my theory about why Peter is so urgent with his message of salvation. It's because he has been radically saved from grievous sins. There isn't a person in this room who has said to Jesus, in the flesh, to his face, I'll go with you wherever you take me, and then didn't do it. Peter had that experience. Peter sees himself. We know that he sees himself as a big, stinking sinner. He went out and wept bitterly. He has an understanding, a good self-assessment of how far short he has fallen. Yet Jesus came to him after the resurrection, came to him and said, Jesus, Peter, I love you. Peter, you're going to be one of my leaders. Peter, I'm going to work through you to build the church. Peter, you're still my guy. In spite of what you did to me, I want you with me you on my team. There isn't a single person in this room who can't identify with that. There isn't a single person in this room who can't look at their lives and say, I have fallen so far short. And then should understand that even you, no matter how far short you have fallen, even you are loved desperately and radically by God enough to say, it doesn't matter. I still want you on my team. I still want you with me. The reason this is urgent to Peter is because he was urgently saved. 
he was radically saved. And I will tell you, this is the gospel message. We can't do enough, yet God still loves us and saves us. This gospel message is offensive and scary to self-righteous people. This gospel message of grace and mercy an unmerited favor and love without condition is scary to the person who looks at themselves and says, I'm wonderful enough. I can do it on my own. I can save myself because it knocks them flat on their back with the truth of the fact that they can't do it. No matter what Anthony Robbins or Scott Jurek or any of those other people who are very inspiring, no matter what they say to you, they can't match this. You need Jesus. You are not enough. That is the truth. If you're here today and you're without Christ, I'm telling you, there's no better day than today for the Holy Spirit to pull you across that line. Today's the day, man. We're going to pray for you. And those of you who do know Christ, understand this is the love. This is the Spirit. This is the resurrection that lives in you. And you have a life of God, we just pray that we would make this real in our lives. God, we pray for anybody in this room right now who does not know you, that this would be the moment that you would know them and they would realize that they are radically loved and radically saved. God, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as always, we want to move to our time of response uh, together as a congregation. If this is your first time, we do this in a couple different ways. You know, we spent all week Thing we do, which we take 